Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 459. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. For more information or to check out other shows on the Evergreen Network, please visit evergreenpodcasts.com. So this week's interview is with Andrew Gottlieb. Andrew is founder and CEO of No Typical Moments, a highly specialized digital marketing agency that works exclusively with purpose-driven and social impact-focused businesses to collectively advance humanity. In this discussion with Andrew, we explore his pursuit of a career in football, aka soccer, how we might redefine success, traits of the Generation Y, and the heightening of the consciousness of business leaders. You'll find all the show notes on minterdial.com. Please do consider to drop in your rating and review, and don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show with Andrew Gottlieb. Andrew Gottlieb, great to have you on the show. You uh, did me the great privilege of having me on your show. And you're also someone who obviously likes to connect people. In your own words, Andrew, how would you like to describe yourself? How do I like to describe myself? I, I would say connector could be uh, a word to describe myself. Um, I actually have a KPI I measure myself against every month. My goal is to make uh, 20 introductions every month. Uh, I wouldn't say there's like a great reason or rhyme for it. For instance, when I connected you with Maurizio um, and his wife, Zaya, it just, I just felt these two people, Minter and Maurizio and Zaya, they have to connect. Uh, and hopefully you had a really good conversation with him on your podcast. He's definitely an interesting character and Zaya is super insightful. I would describe myself, I had to use three adjectives. I would say, um, or words, nouns, whatever the right word would be. I would say uh, entrepreneur, soccer player, uh, Pittsburgh Steeler enthusiast. Oh, well, so I'm a, I'm a Philadelphia flyer enthusiast, which is a different sport, different end of the state as well. Talk to me about soccer. You, we, we call it over here, footy football. What position do you play and, and what attracts you to, to soccer? Sure. So uh, I played soccer my entire life. Uh, I'm probably going to give you a lot more background on this. Uh, I know through some of your research you saw in whatever capacity uh, I played soccer. So played my entire life, uh, club high school, um, played collegiately for two years, uh, back. And I'm going to give a bigger background to this. I hope that's okay. Um, sure. to kind of point where I'm at right now. So, um, I, uh, I stopped playing after my sophomore year of college. It was through a combination of a lot of things. I had, I sprained my ankle three times in a month. Ugh. Uh, uh, I definitely like to party uh, in college and, and playing a college sport doesn't exactly lead to that type of uh, lifestyle year round. It's hard uh, to play health. hard and work hard. Right. Uh, and definitely a nerd in the classroom. So that took a pretty high priority too. Uh, and then with that too, I realized uh, I'm not going to be a pro soccer player and I really need to figure out what I want to do with my life. I was the, the kid and the student who had straight A's you know, decent enough SAT scores, but never was putting that in a clear direction of what my career was going to be. And I had an opportunity to intern on Wall Street after my sophomore year of college. And I thought, you know, the ankle sprain, 
this realization, uh, this is too good of an opportunity to pass up and I'm not gonna be able to train like I normally do in New York City to actually come back and, and play the following year. So uh, made that decision. Uh, like a lot of athletes um, that I've spoken to about this, I didn't exercise probably for the next two years. Uh, and kind of furthering that as well, I didn't touch a soccer ball probably for another four or five years after that. So I want to say from the age of 19 to maybe 28, I didn't touch a soccer ball, almost a decade. And one day over Christmas break, I don't know why I had my soccer cleats that my mom packed in my car when it got shipped across the country. I bought a soccer ball and I thought, what the hell, I'm just going to go up to the field and start kicking around. And it felt like when I was juggling, like nothing had passed. And I would say probably for the next year, I was just dabbling maybe once a month. I would just get the cleats on and juggle. And I uh, finally worked up the courage to play in a pickup game. Uh, fast forward again, uh, in COVID, uh, in our lockdowns, what really got me through that is I held this carrot above my head and I said, I'm going to keep on training. I'm going to do what I did way back in the day when I was full throttle, like running 1142 mile times. Uh, and this is going to really help to just ground me during this chaos. And, uh, I had the mentality of the, uh, replacements and I just had this care and it's like, okay, if this all continues, I'm going to be in peak shape. And if there's an opportunity to try out for a pro team, I'm going to go ahead and do it. Uh, so last December, uh, but I've been December, 2020, I saw a post with the local, uh, pro team. They're called the San Diego loyal. It's Landon Donovan's team. They're in the USL, which is the division below the MLS. Uh, Landon Donovan, was he not the captain of the U S team? Or at least he's a very prominent figure. Yep. He's probably the most well-known U S men's national player of all time. And he he's the, the coach of the team. I think general manager, something like that. And, um, even in my like peak college day, that would have been like a stretch of being able to compete with that level of talent tonight. I saw that and I just thought, okay, I, I said I was going to do this. If there's ever a pro soccer tryout at the end of COVID, I'm going to do it no matter what. So signed up, I hired a trainer and I had 30 days to like ramp up my, my training and ability to um, get to that trout in February, 2021. Um, so to, to kind of revert back to that's a much probably longer answer than you were expecting. Uh, and uh, back in the day, I played outside right mid, uh, just like a workaholic of, you know, 90 runner. Minutes. Yeah. Uh, with being, uh, so the cutoff age actually for that trial is, was 25. And I sent in a highlight tape and a very persuasive email to allow me to go, even though I was uh, five years above their uh, cutoff age limit. And I thought, okay, if I'm going to do something during this trial, I know I feel confident outside right back. I uh, played outside right back. And that was actually the first 90 minute game I'd played in, in college. So 11 years since I'd played in a 90 minute, like all out game, they just threw us onto the field. And it was uh, mainly recent college grads, like 22, 23 year olds. And then a bunch of uh, guys who've been circulating around like USL, maybe some divisions below that. And they're just trying to find like their one last chance to get into a pro team and see how, uh, how they can climb. Uh, and I felt like I held my own. I'm not going to say I'd any way was ready to make that team, but my goal was just to be at that trial and to hold my own and be able to look back 10 years into the future or in the past of 
hey, I did that and I held my own against, you know, a field of 22 recent college grads, professional soccer players, and I did it. That was my my main thing. And I know I can look back on this and I made an awesome slide tackle right in front of Landon Donovan and he had his clipboard out taking notes of all the players. So in my mind, I'm like, he had to have written Andrew Gottlieb, nice slide tackle. If I had one compliment from that game. Studs down. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Got the ball. Um, And what about your maybe heroic or best player you admire the most and why? You know, I would probably say Landon Donovan. Um, Why? If I'm, I mean, there's like players I'd played against on much smaller scales than that. Um, like a guy who is my uh, coach and, and personal trainer for a while, he played on uh, their team at Pittsburgh called the Pittsburgh Riverhounds, the same league, USL. His name is Matt Mailer. If I had to give a shout out to Matt, uh, I'd say him and, and Landon Donovan were my two. I'd say Matt just because I had that personal close connection uh, with him. And I'm always going to remember doing sprints with him, um, like on the edge of just puking for an hour straight. And I would say Landon Donovan, that just heroic goal he scored in the 90, 90th minute that advanced uh, the U.S. to the next stage. That's such a defining moment of uh, just U.S. men's national team play. Well, hopefully there'll be many more years ahead. It's always been, you know, living in England, we, um, you know, look at the United States, huge country, many immigrants who know what football is, soccer is all about, and yet never been able to sort of peek out. And of course, having a professional league that develops talent and brings them up to figure out how to actually put out the 90 minutes. Um, it's another story, maybe like business in general. Um, so let's, let's uh, focus on or talk now more about no typical moments. How on earth do you come up with a name like that for an agency? Yes, so uh, uh, dating back to you know what I was sharing with soccer, um, when I went to New York City, that was a just huge um, life-changing awakening experience for me. Uh, being in New York City for that summer. If you've ever been to New York, you know exactly what I'm talking about when your uh, feet hit the cement and the energy and the enthusiasm for life, it just radiates through you. Uh, what, what I said too about a reason for not continuing to play soccer was, uh, this was one of many, but definitely my, my parting ways back in school. Uh, and at one point in time, I remember I was emailing with a mentor um, and he had recommended I read a book called Way the Peaceful Warrior. He had kind of just heard what was going on in my life. And when I read that book, it was just a giant aha that I had never heard a story shared with a character, Dan, uh, that resonated so deeply with me. And there was a moment in the book where uh, his mentor, Socrates, tells him to you know, go outside and don't come back until you can tell me what the meaning of life is. And eventually after a few tries, he comes back and says, uh, life has no ordinary moments. And for whatever reason, that left a huge imprint on me of how my whole life was really dictated around the party, the Friday and Saturday night adrenaline and and thrill of that. And the, the same level of joy and excitement can be found through just, you know, an afternoon stroll on a Wednesday, hypothetically. Uh, and so eventually I knew I wanted to be uh, an entrepreneur and start my own company. 
which a lot of people say that you actually need a product or service that makes sense. And just through that experience, I remember going on Google and trying to find other words besides ordinary that I could make a company name eventually one day in uh, typical uh, instead of ordinary. And I just had that name, no typical moments. And I just said, if I ever have a company, it's, this is going to be the title of it at no relevancy to product service that was going to be birthed one day. I just felt like it had a story to my background and an ethos of a brand that I wanted to create. So what does no typical moments do? Great question. So, uh, over the years, and I know uh, before this conversation, we were talking about all of my extremely outdated uh, marketing assets I have about me online. So we've uh, shifted a lot over the years, and I'll just kind of share where we're at in January of 2022, which might, our website might tell a different story of what was going on in like January of 2016. So uh, who we work with is um, online education organizations. Uh, which can range from anything related to teachings about, we actually just last night um, secured a deal with a, a Qigong organization. So it can be anything from health, wellness, business, personal finance. Uh, we're working on a docu-series around birth control. Um, so in our opinion, anything that kind of find defines uh, or falls into one of these different verticals. And then we support them uh, with their digital marketing campaigns. So this can be anything from uh, sending in our team of outsourced CMOs to help with our holistic marketing plan and how all their pieces are connected to media buying campaigns, email marketing sequences, uh, web design. Um, but our real core competency is Facebook ads. Um, but we have a lot of different um, services lined up of how we can support teams uh, or organizations with uh, our digital marketing uh, talent. So you're working with organizations that want to educate, as, as what I understand is the sort of the core market that you're working with. How would you describe, from your viewpoint, different from the marketing per se, but just love focus on the education side, because that's something I enjoy, and I certainly talked about that with Maritsu and Zaya, is, is how is education evolving given all the digital tools and where do we need to improve? Sure. Um, I'll give an example of how I think education is shifting on a uh, macro level is if you look at what's going on with higher education and just the skyrocketing costs, like I was just looking at the college I went to and what it was like when I applied and how exponentially higher it's gotten in a decade and probably in another two to three decades, what is that gonna look like? Uh, and I think with that too, and I just had a conversation with um, some people more on the inside there and their pulse on students that if they're gonna be paying $60,000 a year for a job or for uh, uh, schooling, they want that job and that ROI ready for them. Uh, ready to go. It's not like my parents' generation where I think my dad told me like in four years, he spent under $10,000, maybe on the max end uh, for a degree. Um, so I think with that, uh, younger people are looking for alternative ways of how to learn job-related skill sets that are actually going to be tangible into ROI uh, and actual careers. Uh, I would say with that too, as adults, um, I don't think there's a in my opinion, at least, going to get an MBA is just not a thing I can do. Uh, you know, granted, if I worked at a big bank, uh, a big accounting firm, a big consulting firm, and they were going to put up that bill, 
you know, sure, I'll do it, but it, I'm not going to spend $100,000 to get an MBA. Maybe if I got into an Ivy League school, but I'm probably not smart enough to get into an Ivy League school. So in my opinion, it's kind of like, what's what's the point of it then? Uh, Sounds like a boondoggle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's so many forms of adult on-demand education that you can learn about that are directly applicable to your job, that you can find the website, whether it's from you know bigger courses like Udemy, maybe it's something really specialized. You can go in, you can take that course, up your skill sets and become a better professional in a whatever career endeavor. And I would say with that too, there's just so many life skills uh, you can learn about through experts sharing their insights on. Uh, I mean, for instance, I'll give another example. Um, during COVID, gym shut down. Uh, back, I don't know, like 30 years ago, I'm sure my dad, his option would have been, you know, go to a track and run, like do push-ups and sit-ups. Uh, with me, uh, there's a company called Onnit, who I love. Uh, Onnit created uh, a six-week online course um, for kettlebell movements. So cool. Went and bought an Amazon kettlebell for 30 bucks, bought their course for 60. And I had workouts for the next year and a half by spending 90 bucks. Uh, so there are just so many cool avenues of life skills, professional skills that are just on demand, like, oh, I'm weak in this. I can go search for this skill set that I want to up-level in my life. Sweet. I, I want to get back to the no typical moments and, and what you actually do with, you know, Facebook and, and all that, but it does strike me as you profess, uh, you are a millennial. And one of the things that intrigues us old farts like me is understanding uh, the millennial mindset. And so start by asking, I'm wondering what Andrew thinks is the biggest misunderstanding that my generation, your parents, particularly, should we be the same age? What we misunderstand about millennials? Mm-hmm. I would say that we're soft and snowflakes. So we 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 misunderstand you. We think you're snow. You're soft snowflakes. Yes. And and really, uh, <laughs> some of us are. I'd like to say that's an overgeneralization of. Sure. Uh, uh, of how millennials operate. And I think sometimes the, um, uh, the attitude millennials can have of, you know, wanting a well-paying job that's fun and you enjoy and 10 other things. Uh, I, I think title. That, yeah, exactly. Um, uh, I would say also, um, that I think there's a misconception around lack of resiliency, uh, and, and grit um in younger generations and i would counter that to uh 100 there are millennials who operate that way i can think of 20 people off the the cusp uh who operate like that but i would say there's also i know a ton uh, of hardworking, determined resilient millennials uh who have kind of that old school work ethic like i need to get a job done it's going to take me 20 hours today to do it let's just go and do it all right. So where does that misunderstanding come from? Um, I would say uh, some of the things millennials might advocate for, like a four-day work week mm-hmm. could be one. I would say the belief that- Four-hour, a four-hour work four, week in the case uh, of some. Four day work, oh, four-hour work week and four-day work. Mr. Ferris. 
Right. Um, I would say uh, with that too, um, life balance. Um, I would say uh, wanting to step in like immediately after school into your dream job in a well-paid, awesome organization, like the misconception perhaps of all millennials think they should just become like their senior VP at Google right when they, they graduate. Um, I would say also uh, um, the utilization of social media. So for me, uh, me being on Instagram, Slack, email, Zoom all day long, um, it's just how my brain operates. Uh, I've noticed this can, uh, with older generations that it's an effort to go from like social media to Slack and whatnot. And like, I can be on Slack, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube at once and just like do, 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 do. And it's not like, it's not really slowing me down or it doesn't mean I'm not uh, really honed in on what I'm doing with work. Not to say we're multitasking. It's just like, just because we might post every day on Instagram, that doesn't actually reflect like we're not working. It just, we have the ability to do these things like mm -hmm. so quick and on the spot. It, it's not, it's just second nature to us growing up with AOL, AOL Instant Messenger, for instance, like mm -hmm. our entire lives have just been like quick text-based responses and instantaneous whatever online. Mm. Well, it, it reminds me of, of in my youth when I was at university and I listened to an economist speak, Lester Thoreau to name him, who said, in the future, this is 1985, in the future, all executives will be, will do the typing themselves. And at the time, this was not what we did. You know, these top executives had two, three secretaries whose job was just to type out notes that were either dictated or handwritten, transcribe, you know, horrible handwriting into typed notes on IBM typewriters. And uh, I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. So I learned how to type. But nowadays, you know, the, the notion of the language we're talking about, not to mention coding, but the ability to know the syntax in an Instagram versus a TikTok versus a Facebook and, and what goes, what doesn't go. And for you guys, it's obviously much more natural. Mm -hmm. One of the areas that can I, I, I want to... Go ahead, go ahead. Can I give an example too of... Um, I would say it's a misunderstanding and our, um, our distractions are more, um, visible in, in the public. So there's a Pittsburgh Steeler. His name is Juju Smith-Schuster. He's, you know, on TikTok, he's on social media all the time, Instagram, uh, like that's his thing. And people view that as, um, he's not focused on football because he's posting on social media all the time. But when the game hits, he's on, like he's not messing around. So that's an example of like, that's very open in the public. A different example is um, I was watching a ESPN documentary about the 1980s New York Mets. No idea this was going on. Probably the general public didn't be there in the, the inside. Those dudes were doing so much cocaine and had so much involvement with hookers and everything else that comes with that. But it was so behind the scenes that the general public didn't see just how big of a distraction that probably actually was because it was just before social media. You didn't even, unless you're on the inside, you had no idea like all these dudes are doing cocaine and everything else that comes with the nightlife in New York City. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. 
We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out. Turns out I was working in New York City at that very time. Um, the thought that comes to me, the question is the notion of transparency. Mm-hmm. How does a millennial view transparency? Because those Mets back in those days obviously were able to hide behind a certain mm-hmm. screen because not everything was out in the open. Mm-hmm. In today's world, maybe there's a visibility that is afforded, but then there's a lack of privacy that is taken away. How does a millennial react to, to transparency and privacy and that, that paradox on us that lies within? Uh, I would say that's what millennials thrive off of. Uh, I would say that's why there's a distrust for politicians, big corporations, um, whatever else you, you want to throw out there is that it just feels really secretive and private versus just being up in front or uh, up, uh, up uh, what would be the right word, um, authentic about what's actually happening. Um, like we, I think we can build more trust with those organizations or those political leaders, business leaders, whatever it is, if they actually let us more into their life and what they're like. I would give Elon Musk a ton of credit since he appeared in the Joe Rogan podcast of just how much behind the curtain we've been able to see an experience from him of who he, who this character actually is, uh, which I actually like Elon even more because I feel like he's opened up a little bit more. Him uh, admitting on SNL that he, I believe he said he had Asperger's. That was like a, wow, that that's extremely vulnerable for this richest man in the world to come forward with that. And that builds even more trust with millennials versus trying to hide that or point the finger at someone else of like, no, you're, you're weird. You're the uh, news reporter. Like, who do you think you are? Uh, but he's just up in front and center with a lot of these uh, hardships he's experienced. Yeah, that notion of relating to the humanity of the person because no one's perfect. And, and let's just focus on this. I want to break down this notion of, let's say, radical transparency mm-hmm. and notions of privacy. Where is the line for a millennial? Where's the line between uh, transparency and privacy? Well, radical transparency, where I show everything, this is all of me, I'm authentic, I'm 100% out there. Mm-hmm. And is there a space then for privacy? And, and how do you draw that line? As I opposed, because the older fashioned yeah. people, just like me, are far more guarded about things, right. that's how we were brought up. And there's always this push for transparency, mm-hmm. yet there's always an agenda behind transparency. And... And 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 you and people tend to think there's an agenda behind privacy. Oh, he's hiding shit. Mm-hmm. I would say just give us a little taste. Like you don't need to tell us what you're eating for lunch every day. You know, once a week, give us a little taste of what's actually going on in your life. Uh, and you could be selective and compartmentalize what you want to be known in public, but just give us little slivers of that. Uh, another example of a guy who. I think is extremely guarded and extremely private. His name is David Goggins. He's made rounds on the internet in the last couple of years since his book, uh, You Can't Hurt Me, came out. He was pretty much unknown until a handful of years ago. And he does one post a week 
one video for under two minutes. Uh, it's him working out, running an extremely authentic, raw, vulnerable piece of content. He doesn't share anything else, like, but we're allowed in a little bit to his life and it allows us to feel connected to him and that he's a relatable and he's a real human being. And he lets us into some of the depths of his uh, struggles he's going through. And he, his book goes into super, super detail of um, everything that went on in his childhood with abuse. Um, but it's just that sliver of let us in just a little and see who the real human behind this big bank account, this organization is. Yeah. The temptation I have, you know, to speak about lunch is, oh, well, today I had Dover sole, and I did with uh, mashed potatoes, no butter. And, uh, you know, it's sort of virtue signaling about how great I am and how healthy I am. That's today. I'm not going to tell you about yesterday where I crapped out at McDonald's. I didn't, but, you know, that kind of a thing, the idea of being authentic and vulnerable, because there's like, I can show you the good things, but when it comes to showing the bad things, it's almost like, oh yeah, I, one of my bad traits is I am so determined. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. As in fuck off and, <laughs> and our, our desire to, to be real, to see that. So this notion of transparency is, as you say, is show a little bit, but then what about this idea of privacy? Mm -hmm. Do you want to share your private elements? Where do you draw the line? Oh, what should be kept secret private? Is that a good thing? Is that something that's necessary for mental health purposes or not? I would say so. I don't think you need to share with the world any and every little thing that's going on in your life. I think you can uh, compartmentalize of what is uh, just sacred and private for you and your loved ones, your family, and, and what you feel comfortable revealing. Um, I'll give another example of someone who I think does a good job of extremely optimistic and positive, like 99% of the time. And then there's that sliver of once a month, a real, relatable, authentic, personal story comes through and it's uh, with The Rock. If you look at yeah. his Instagram channel, it's like nonstop positivity, uplifting, accomplishments. But then you also see he does, he just had... Um, some interviews drop with a major magazine this past fall, which were talking about depression, mental health. Uh, and so I think that's a good example too of, a, and also The Rock is not very um, open about like his marriage and what's going on behind the scenes. He might give a shout out to his wife, but it's not coming in and talking about their argument uh, or whatnot. Um, so I think that's another good example of, it, it's sharing a positive and uplifting message and they're not just verbally diarying on their Instagram page all day, but they have that sliver of vulnerability, authenticity. And then they have, I'm sure he has 99 other things that are private that the world's never going to need to know about. Yeah. When you do that sliver, it has to be a real and two somehow negative. I mean, cause if it's like, you know, Oh my, I had a dent on my Bentley. Right. Uh, okay. Uh, but I suffered from abuse as a child. Mm -hmm. There's a difference. There's a, a whole, you know, waft of difference. You, you mentioned earlier, Andrew, life skills and the learning of life skills, grit and resilience. And I'm thinking about uh, a number of people who are listeners who manage millennials. And what are the kinds of things that we as, and in general, you, of course, too, can do to 
upgrade grit and resilience or favor that within the organization? Should, should a manager be more demanding and, hey, listen, do this? Mm-hmm. Or do we have to remain in sort of giving agency and, and allowing for emotions? Where do, where do we split the bill? Because if you're like a, a, a colonel in the army, you know, you bloody march up and down the yard because that's what I'm asking you to do. And then the other one is, oh, what would you like to do today, dear? I got you. Um, I can give some examples of how I've uh, handled this at my own organization. Um, so I, there's also a difference between um, if someone you're, you're leading and managing is, uh, shouldn't be at your organization anymore and you need to fire them versus someone who's been a high performer they're awesome to work with, and they had some big challenges and some breakdowns with their work. So I'm going to put the like, you need to fire them into a different bucket and who's, you know, historically been really good, and they just had a bad project, a bad week. So uh, I think it's super important to allow millennials to fail uh, and not micromanage people when they have that, when you've already built that trust and rapport with them, and you can just kind of let them go. Um, because if you're always trying to correct them, if you're always trying to save the day at the last second, um, they're not going to ever take accountability for their work and take real ownership for their results. Uh, so I think that's super important to get millennials into that uh, position of accountability and responsibility for mm-hmm. what they're producing. Uh, so this summer, we had um, a account, uh, a longer term client of our business uh, leave us. Um, we were doing historically really well throughout the entire 2021. Uh, we had someone new shift onto the account. They also and their team had some internal shifting and whatnot, and we just couldn't get on the same page with their new marketing team, and they decided to let us go. Uh, he's been historically really great with us. So, uh, and I let him, you know, fend, I don't want to say fend for himself, but I really let him take ownership of this project and uh, live or die with the results in a lot of ways. Um, you didn't, really you didn't step in like Dan Draper. Right. And, uh, what I focused in on is everyone needed to come and prepare with me, um, their learnings, their breakdowns of where they didn't fulfill their, you know, brand promise of working at no typical moments. And let's really use this as a learning experience and show me now on your projects coming up, how you're stepping into uh, these lessons and aren't going to allow them to repeat themselves. So uh, that that was my big focus. Let them fail. Um, let them take those learnings uh, and actually improve uh, and take responsibility for that moving forward. Nice. I like that. Of course, you need to give them the resources to be successful in that, which is always a little bit the give and take within it. So we talked a lot about management and dealing with millennials, you included, of course, and how you deal with them. Um, at no typical moments, you're, you, as I understand it, you deal with these customers that are obviously working on education, kind of mission-led. And, and here's the deal. Not every company that says I'm mission-led is mission-led. How do you detect, what, where is your BS spray and all that? And how, how, how do, you, do you, do you say no to clients? And they say, oh, listen, we're a great purpose-led. We love to do this. We're educating. And you're like, horseshit. What's the dialogue that goes yeah. there? Um, 
There's a good question. So there's a few ways I can determine this. So I would say the our main way of bringing in new clients to the business is through um, our referral network. So our referral network, I believe, shares similar values uh, to myself. For instance, Maurizio uh, sends us a good amount of intros. I know who Maurizio is, and Maurizio doesn't associate himself with um, a, a group that I wouldn't want to work with. So it's it can be in a lot of ways my referral network, and it's that's almost like our mini sales team in a lot of ways. Like I know mm -hmm. their value system. And it's aligned with mine. So whoever they enter it to me is going to be in the same role of you. That's like an easy, okay, Maurizio sent it. I know they're going to be cool to work with. Um, we do have an intake form. We ask people to fill out. And that's a big way that I can start to pick up on some red flags. For instance, like uh, I ask them to state, what's your mission statement? If they come back and it's just like to make as much money as possible and not give out any refunds. That's a huge red flag. Oh, there we go. There's a good <laughs> uh, so I do look at that mission statement and see how clearly uh, they articulate that. Um, and then I would say if they have certain status like B Corp, uh, are they benefit corporation? Are they actively in philanthropy and volunteerism? Do they have any best practices uh, that I'm seeing highlighted on their website? Uh, and then I would say the last one is more of just an intuitive answer of when I have that sales meeting with them, what are flags I pick up on, for instance, um, and this is uh, um, people who, you know, have the resources and money to pay us, not the people who, you know, they're just not ready for this type of investment. So two different buckets. And uh, there have been numerous times where I've been in that sales meeting and just something intuitively feels off. Uh, and, and I pass on it, it could be as simple as like, um, I'll use this as a flag marker of asking them about their experience with prior agencies and do they immediately go into like bad mouthing? Do they say they suck? Worst team ever. And in my mind, I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a red flag. Let's just keep that. And, and let me keep on asking these questions. So I do, it's, I set it up intentionally, um, as like an application to work with us. So it is me vetting them too as they should be vetting me as an agency. So it is a two-sided uh, dialogue. I don't know if people realize that's what's going on, but that is what's going on. That makes sense to me. And, and certainly when you are a values-driven organization and you start working with shit people, that, mm -hmm. that kind of actually weighs on your own values and your, your own team will start looking at you like, what the hell is he doing about? So in the last piece of, of what I want to talk about, let's talk about actually no, no typical moment stuff. And, and I'm desperately wanting to know some inside secrets about how on earth, well, actually, is Facebook going to survive? And how on earth does one use Facebook uh, successfully? Is it, is it worth investing in ads? Is it, is it worth doing, spending time having a social media manager posting on Facebook? I feel like it, the algorithm is squeezing out anything that's free. And basically, it's all about the highest bidder. Uh, it is definitely a pay-to-play platform. Uh, with that being said, anyone can play. Uh, I would say there's a few things going on right now with Facebook, especially since um, iOS 14 updates happened in June. <laughs> uh, I would say it's definitely become harder to advertise. Um, 
if you had junior people on your accounts, your accounts, I am almost, almost going to guarantee, unless you're marketing the rock, your account results have drastically decreased because of the, I won't go into the technicality of it. Uh, so to answer your question, do I believe Facebook is going to survive? Yes. I think they're a massive, innovative organization. We'll see what happens with the metaverse. I'm also not putting all of my eggs in one basket, which is why uh, when I started and shared the depth of services that we offer, I saw what was happening last December with uh, iOS updates. In December of 2020, I saw that when they first made the announcement. And so for six months, I was actively building out other services because I just can't put all my eggs in Zuck's basket uh, of Facebook being the best option for our clients. So we have a, a different approach where probably before that it was we're the Facebook advertising team. Now it's more so the entry point to work with us is uh, work with one of our outsourced CMOs so they can even just assess the landscape of your digital infrastructure and what is your first move. Because for a lot of organizations is actually not Facebook ads is their first move. It's let's build up my referral program. Let's have uh, our affiliate network uh, that I'm JVing with. Um, let me, I don't know, I do... I don't even think this is a great one, but let's just say it's uh, speak from stage. I, I don't know. I'm just saying there's a lot of ways to get into the digital world that I'm not advocating of Facebook is that first step. And there's probably a lot of other lower hanging fruit. Uh, and also, I think you should be working to validate proof of concept in other ways before going to Facebook. So I always say the way to test your offer is test it through your email database see what the conversion rates are. If you have some affiliates, test it with them. And then Facebook ads would be the third layer uh, in that progression ladder. You could go straight to Facebook ads, but if you don't have the capital, it's gonna take, um, it's gonna take a lot of time and resources to figure out that winning formula. Uh, and I think you can save yourself a lot of time and energy by doing those two other um, routes at the onset. Uh, last note to add in is there's a much bigger emphasis on creatives right now because of all those technical issues and you could target people at the exact right time and the exact right atmosphere, whatever else is going on with the AI algorithm. Um, it's really important to have awesome copy design and video content uh, because that is, it's kind of going back to marketing 101. Facebook ads became super technical and tactical because of the targeting parameters you could set. Now it's coming back to marketing 101 of, are you hitting on pain points? Do you have awesome copy? What's your video like? Uh, and getting people into your system that way. And, and Facebook ads has always been a way to get people in to what we call top of funnel, get them into your awareness. Ecosystem. Yep. Get them into your database, sell lower price point offers. It's not the place to sell, you know, your $50,000 premium offer that that's like 10 steps down the line. So always just keep that in mind. If Facebook is the way to get them in, it's, it's not the end all be all to that customer journey flow. I mean, from an outside perspective, because I'm far from an expert, it feels like the algorithm is everything. Uh, yep. and, and we I have heard a these good, com I was computer buying and, and everything. Go for it. Uh, and say that Facebook ads is much more about um, how to use the algorithm instead of be used by the algorithm. Mm. Well, so that means you have to have a little bit of inside knowledge or at least mm. experiences to be able to generate and and so the old guy in me says, you know, creating great content a la Don Draper, 
is, well, assuming he makes great content in his ear, um, having that creative spirit and, and that the, the daring to say things that aren't politically correct, mm-hmm. is that something that resonates or, or you have to be careful on that and, and on this? And then how do you be creative when, in that little box that's left? Yeah, so that goes back to my point uh, I just made as Facebook's the entry point. So you're playing in Facebook's sandbox. It's their rules. It's their privacy. They're a private organization, whether you agree with it or not. These are just the rules. And if you publicly want to be- traded, they're publicly traded, right? Publicly traded. Um, so with that being said, uh, and we've worked with, for instance, um, like. Uh, a few sex teachers, tantra teachers over the years. And you can't on Facebook go straight to your triple X content of how to be a better level lover. You have to have a PG way to bring someone in. And then once they're on your email database, go to town with whatever that risky, that Don Draper content, polarizing content is going to look like, but you have to know the rules of Facebook to just get them in. Right. Like, for instance, if it's that um, Tantra teacher who's teaching about intimacy, you can't go straight into the triple X content. You have to lead in with like, what would it be like to be in a relationship where you led from your heart and you knew each other at a soul level, like stuff like that. That's very PG. That's not going to flag anything. And then once you're on your list, like, like I said, go to town with that more risky content as it's not going to be flagged by Facebook anymore. Mm-hmm. All right, so I want to finish, Andrew, talking about um, within your mission, as I understand it, is really raising the consciousness of leaders. Mm-hmm. And that's a topic that's totally shared between you and me. And I did want to get into Burning Man and all those other things. But let's start by just saying, how, how does one actually raise the consciousness of business leaders today? And if you're talking to a, an old fart like myself, what are the types of arguments that you feel are working in, in pushing forward the agenda of higher consciousness? Mm-hmm. And it, how it relates to um, our services and what we're doing? Yeah. And how you, I mean, cause that seems to be your sort of more personal mission in life in general. Yeah. I would say um, I really believe education and books and content are the way to expand people's consciousness. Like how many people have shared with you over the years, I read this book and my life changed because of this. So the more we can get that type of content, that type of resources into people and create more empathetic leaders, um, I think we're going to be changing that worldview of what success looks like and how people are treating uh, one another. Um, uh, I'll give an example of uh, I'm in a, a business mastermind in San Diego, and it's definitely um, more of your like, it's not your change the world type mastermind. Love it, but that's not the ethos of it. Um, what I've seen though, is actually once you put men in a place of safety and vulnerability, they actually deep down are really empathetic leaders who don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. And it might come out in a different way, because of whatever subconscious beliefs they have of what a man and a leader needs to look like when they're leading an organization. Um, but at the end of the day, like they actually genuinely do care about their people and their customers and their family and their products and whatever it is. Uh, and I, I just believe if you can get 
men and leaders into that space of empathy and compassion uh, and true purpose and alignment for what they're doing. It's going to create better customers, better employees, um, better communities, better all stakeholders involved. Well, you can imagine uh, that as an author, first of all, I, I love the idea of reading books. And as a person who wrote a book about empathy, I, I can only um, further approve that thought. Um, Andrew, last uh, zone, let's talk about Burning Man. And um, I've never been. I've been to 200 uh, concerts of the Grateful Dead. I, I know what psychedelics are. I've never done Burning Man. Uh, should I do Burning Man still today? And uh, are you, would you consider yourself a burner? I think Burning Man is one of those bucket list items everyone should go and experience and create their own adventure. Why? Uh, why? Um, it pushes you so far out of your comfort zone that I think you gain a deeper appreciation for who you tr truly are at your core essence. Um, between you know camping in the desert, the extreme environments, the wind, the not being able to bring in food and supplies for an entire week, not showering, trying to scavenger for water, just meeting people from all over the world. It puts you in such an extreme environment that it just shows you who you truly are. And I, I think Google actually did tests with their new CEO that they needed to survive a week of Burning Man in order to um, advance in their interview process. If you uh, haven't tripped or done Burning Man, you ain't an executive at Google is basically what I've heard. Um, and uh, yeah, there's, it's such a um, pick your own adventure while you're there too. Um, there's hundred percent the the party scene. There's also the art, there's the camping, there's the just biking, the just hundred different workshops and experiences. So you, you really just see uh, like I said, again, you see yourself at a deeper level of who you truly are and what you're made of to survive that extreme environment. And I think putting yourself in extreme situations, events, uh, putting yourself under that extreme stress just builds a lot of character too. Uh, and so do I consider myself a burner? Um, I think I gave the answer before we started yes and no. I think at my heart, uh, I'm like this grungy hippie uh and then i think at the same time i uh, i've uh i guess i've seen elements of burning man that i'm not as in alignment with as i was a handful of years ago when i was there um uh just kind of like the the people who live burning man 365 um so yeah i am and i'm not i think i identified a lot more when i was like really really in it and i went three years in a row and now that it's been five years since i've gone uh maybe i've just taken a step back and it's like yeah there's parts of me that are a burner there's other parts that maybe don't resonate as much as i did a handful of years ago when i was there every year so it's more like enjoy the experience but don't necessarily be at 365. i would say so i, I think it's i would highly agree with what i said before to toot my own horn that it's a experience I highly recommend everyone to have once in their life. Do it once. If you never want to go back, awesome, you did it. You could be one of those old farts who go for the next 30 years. <laughs> uh, and I've seen tons of those people there and then like pregnant moms who bring their kids and then you see kids who are like, I've been at Burning Man 20 times. And you're like, well, you're only 19. How's that happen? They're like, oh, I was in my mom's stomach. <laughs>
Hey. All right. So, um, Andrew, how can anyone track you down, find you? What's the best links to, to get to you, please? Uh, hopefully, our website will be updated by the time this interview uh, goes live. It should uh, be. No, <laughs> no typical moments. Uh, dot com is the hub for anything that I'm doing uh, on there. Um, LinkedIn is where I keep it pretty professional. Uh, just Andrew Gottlieb. You can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, I've become more of an Instagrammer versus a Facebooker recently. So uh, Andrew L. Gottlieb is my uh, Instagram handle. Um, you can find me on Facebook as well. I'm sure I'll get back to you pretty quick Beautiful. if you want to connect. Thank you, Andrew. Great to talk about the millennial mindset and uh, and how we can make the world a little bit better even if it's just for a session in a desert uh, to raise the higher consciousness. Thanks for coming on my show. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. You as well. Thanks, Minter. Thanks for having listened to this episode of the Minter Dialogue podcast. If you like the show, would like to support me, please consider a donation on patreon.com forward slash Dial. You can also subscribe on your favorite podcast service. And as ever, rating and reviews are the real currency for podcasts. You'll find the show notes with over 2,000 and more blog posts on MinterDial.com. Check out my documentary film and four books, including my last one, You Lead, How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man. Convince me. I'm ready for an arrest. I'm a convinced man.
Imagine how fast we could solve the world's biggest problems if more SaaS startups would gain traction sooner. Welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. This podcast is dedicated to sharing experiences from B2B SaaS CEOs who are going above and beyond to deliver change that is noticed. You will hear their secrets and learn what is required to build a SaaS business that the world starts talking about and keeps talking about and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so.